Good evening. My name's Rich. I'm one of the leaders of the church. And you're very, very welcome to our carol service. I hope you've been enjoying it so far. It's been okay? Yeah? You're probably Christmassy sort of people, aren't you? Otherwise, you're not going to be here. The Scrooges tend not to come to these kind of things. So I'm guessing we're kind of on safe ground with carols and things like that. I'll give you some carol facts, if you like. Um, They've done a few surveys recently about Christmas, one of which is looking at the Christmas traditions and trying to work out which ones are the most popular and those kind of things. So they ask people, which of the traditional Christmas things do you like doing? And singing carols came fifth on the list, which isn't bad. 74% of people surveyed said they like singing carols and traditional Christmas songs, probably including most of you uh, here tonight. Um, It came fifth just a couple of percentage points behind watching films on TV, which I'm not sure that qualifies as a Christmas tradition, but it, it, it got there. You know, so well done for being here tonight, really. You could have been home watching Die Hard or something like that, so you've, you've done very well. Does anyone want to hazard a guess as to what the number one Christmas tradition was? Who would have presents? Not presents, you'd think so, but not. Higher than that? Not turkey, we'll come to that in a minute. Christmas trees, somebody said Christmas trees. Well done. Decorating a Christmas tree, 94% of the population like doing that, so there's still a few bad eggs who don't enjoy that one. Uh, On Christmas songs, I also stumbled across this as I was uh, doing a bit of research for this. Are we familiar with Paul McCartney's song, Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time? Do you know, every year in royalties, that nets him a quarter of a million pounds. Every year. And... And and where I found this fact, there was a lovely little kind of rider after that statement saying, despite the fact that it is widely regarded as the worst song he ever recorded. (laughs) So he's doing all right out of it, isn't he? On the food side, we've also been taking care to investigate Christmas kind of traditions and what people like. This is the first year that sprouts, you may have heard of, topped Christmas pudding in the popularity contest. So they're, they're on the up, which is good news for those of us who like the correct foods. Incidentally, in a different survey, sprouts were rated higher than turkey itself. It's true. It's true. It's true. Unbelievable, isn't it? So presumably somewhere there are people tucking into the sprouts and sort of putting up with the turkey. Well, I'll have a bit of that for the sprouts. Anyone want to hazard a guess as to what number one was? On all all the items in the Christmas dinner, the most popular one. Roast potatoes. You're absolutely right. Which... I think is incorrect, but there you go. You've got to go with the survey. On the spiritual side of Christmas, 98% of people surveyed were able to correctly identify Bethlehem as the place that Jesus was born in. And 51% agreed with the statement that the birth of Jesus is irrelevant to my Christmas. So there's a range already of approaches there from understanding where he was born to thinking, but he's got nothing to do with me. What I'm going to read to you, and it should appear behind me as I do so, I want to read you a Bible passage that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And really what it's doing is it's sketching out in advance God's extraordinary and quite unusual rescue plan for the world, which finds its fulfillment in the Christmas story. It says this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. 
And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And we're going to see that the Christmas story is really unusual because there's a wacky mix in the story between things that are desperately ordinary and things that are highly exceptional. And we're going to come back to that passage in a moment to see what that might mean for us. On the ordinary front, a load of the details in the Christmas story, though we're familiar with them from carols and and hearing the story and maybe seeing little postcards and nativity plays, are extraordinarily ordinary to the point of being normal and mundane. The kind of the action revolves largely around a young couple. They're very poor. She's heavily pregnant. When time comes, she gives birth to a baby boy. That in itself is completely unremarkable. That's a scenario that is acted out all around the world and back through history. Nothing unusual there at all. You could spice it up with a slight twist. There's an inconvenient journey where they have to satisfy the irritating state bureaucracy and travel to take part in a census. But it's grindingly ordinary so far, to the point at which we sometimes lose it because we think romantically of donkeys and lovely Mary. What I'm going to do for just two minutes is show you a quick clip that someone's produced of what, what it would look like if it happened today. And you'll, and you'll notice suddenly that's so ordinary. This is the, the story that we're inhabiting. with a white van. Although I did notice one of the elves from Lord of the Rings sneaking in there just for a moment. It's very, very ordinary. And this is the mundane world uh, of the story that we look at when we come to the Christmas story. The destination of the journey itself was unremarkable as well. On a donkey, not in a van. They went to Bethlehem, as the people in our survey correctly identified. Bethlehem is famous, but only because of the events of the Christmas story. At the time, it was an ordinary, normal, mundane, unexciting, insignificant Jewish village. 
Bethlehem is actually just a few miles outside the city of Jerusalem. It still exists today. There's still a town there on the same place. There's a map that gives you the kind of orientation uh, in modern Israel so you can see just where it is. I was fortunate enough to be there a couple of years ago. I was uh, traveling in Israel uh, and we had a bit of time to go and visit Bethlehem. And it was an extraordinary experience because of two things. On the one hand, it was incredible, genuinely to think, all right, it didn't look like this and the buildings are different. But actually somewhere in this area, Jesus, one of the most influential figures in world history, was born. But it was also extraordinary that juxtaposed with that was the incredible tackiness of it. That all over the place were mementos and kind of shrines and uh, kind of shops selling all sorts of trinkets. The most bizarre thing that we uh, discovered when we were just having a little travel around Jerusalem was a place called the Grotto del Latte which you would think you might be able to buy a coffee out or something like that. But it was actually a kind of half church, half cave dug into the rock that was there to commemorate and celebrate Mary's breast milk, which we thought was slightly wacky. Um, But the fascinating thing about it was it's a real place. It's not Never Never Land. It's not somewhere that is cooked up. It's a real place that you can go and travel around. And we find that the details of the story, the ordinary details of this story, are actually completely real. We read earlier Caesar Augustus was emperor of the Roman Empire at the time these events happened. Caesar Augustus was a real person. We've got a statue of him here. He reigned from 27 BC to 14 AD. He was completely real. It's dating it in a real place, in a real time. Caesar Augustus also conducted several censuses of the Roman world. We read about the census that caused them to travel to to Bethlehem. Well, there's three censuses that Augustus took. What we've got coming up now is an inscription, uh, which is the divine acts of Augustus. This is what the emperor Augustus wrote down, all the great achievements of his reign. And we've got a Roman inscription here, uh, and we're going to pick it up. For those of you who can't read Latin, we're going to pick it up uh, on the 8th of Augustus's great achievements, which roughly corresponds uh, to the right-hand side column, just about, if you can see where it says sensum, but spelt with a V. And it says, in my sixth consulship with Marcus Agrippa, his colleague, I held a census of the people and I performed a lustrum, which is a sacrifice the Romans did at the completion of a census after a lapse of 41 years. At that lustrum, 4,063,000 Roman citizens were enrolled. Then I performed the second lustrum with consular imperium and without a colleague in the consulship of Gaius Censorinus and Gaius Asinius. In that lustrum, 4,233,000 citizens were registered. Thirdly, I performed a lustrum with consular imperium with my son Tiberius Caesar as colleague. In the consulship of Sextus Pompeius and Sextus Apelius, at that lustrum, 4,937,000 citizens were registered. It really happened. It's a real historical event. We read about King Herod. King Herod was a real king, governing the, uh, uh, the kind of area around the Middle East under Roman authority. Here we've got a coin uh, that was minted. Uh, you can't make it out, but in Greek around the side, it says Herod Basilius, Herod the king. It's a coin that was minted under King Herod that exists. Quirinius, if those of you that were listening very sharply for unusual names in the census uh, counts it, it was the second census that was taken under Quirinius when he was governor of Syria. This Quirinius we know about. He's a gentleman called Publius Sulpicius Quirinius. He was born 51 BC, 
and he died 21 AD. He governed the Roman province of Syria, which included modern-day Israel, up until AD uh, 16. And again, we've got an inscription here, uh, which again is not desperately clear for those of us not gifted in Latin, but uh, it basically records the setting up of a statue in honour of someone, uh, and then it goes on to say, officer in charge of works, pontifex, priest, and prefect of Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, the Dumvir, which was a Roman official. What I want to say is these are real people, real events, real concrete evidence. What that means is, though this is very ordinary, this is not once upon a time in a land far, far away which is how we can sometimes think of it, having seen the Christmas cards over and over again with the romantic journey on the donkey. These accounts were written to be real historical events in the real world. And it shouldn't surprise us. The thing that makes it difficult is, as well as on the one hand being very, very ordinary, rooted in history, real people, real dates, real times, real events, real places, there are some exceptional details in the Christmas story. I don't know if you noticed any of them. But angels appearing is extraordinary. A virgin giving birth. A prophecy hundreds of years before being fulfilled. God himself showing up and taking an interest in things is extraordinary. These are very far from ordinary. And because of this, many people assume that the Christmas story is just myth. It's just legend. It's things that people have made up. It can't be true. And it's understandable to think that because these things seem to be so outside our ordinary, everyday um, experience. But what we need to understand is these are deliberately anchored in real time, real events, real people, real places. It's written as history. These events, these uh, narratives, these accounts were written years, not centuries after the event. What we don't have is the equivalent of someone writing up the legend of King Arthur hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. These accounts were written when some of the people involved in them were still alive. Luke, who wrote one of the accounts we read, the historian, says specifically that he invested and checked with people, he would have spoken to some of the participants. It's very likely that we get the account of the story from Mary's point of view, from Mary herself, speaking to Luke, who wrote them down. And so whilst the otherworldly element of it makes us think, well, surely this is just something out of a different kind of way of thinking, not real life, actually, the exceptional nature of these things demands that we have to decide how we're going to come to terms with it. And dismissing it as, oh, that's just untrue or impossible, may not be the best way of doing it. It's tempting, isn't it, to think, come on, angels turning up, virgin birth, God prophecies. And if there is no God, If God doesn't exist, then those things suddenly become highly improbable, don't they? If all we have is the kind of physical world around us that we can measure, investigate, and probe with science, then of course angels and God, and it's all very improbable. Although it's interesting, in another survey that's been conducted recently into people's spiritual beliefs, in the UK, 75% of people questioned said that they believed there was more to life and this existence than just things that can be experienced and measured through science and a scientific worldview. In other words, 75% of the people living in this country would say they believe in some shape or form of God or gods or spiritual world or angels or miracles. But if there's no God, maybe it's improbable. But just take a step and think, if God is real, 
If he does really exist, and if he exists, he exists whether we believe in him or not. He's not something that we create up out of our feelings or faith. If God really exists, are these things so improbable after all? How hard is it if God really exists to sort out conception? How hard is it to send a few angels? How hard is it to do a prophecy? How hard is it to appear? And what I want us to think about is this. If God really exists, maybe these extraordinary events in the midst of an ordinary life is God's way of knocking on the door. Maybe this is God's way of introducing himself. And yet we can do it almost back to front. It, 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 we, we can be like the person sitting at home, hearing a knock at the door and deciding there's no point answering it because I know there's nobody outside. Well, hang on, think it through. What you've done is you've already started with your position and then you've, you've kind of skewed the evidence to fit it. We can do exactly that with God. What if the Christmas story is God knocking at the door and announcing himself to us and we say, well, all these extraordinary things, but I know there's no God, so they can't have happened. You're just like the person sitting home saying, I hear the knocking, but I know there's no one outside, so that knocking can't exist. It's the wrong way round. If God does exist, actually these things are not so extraordinary himself. If God is knocking at the door, then maybe we need to pay attention to it. Jesus' birth, I believe, was God beginning to knock, beginning to speak to us. Jesus is like the story we've seen so far, a really weird mix of the ordinary and the exceptional. To jump back to the Isaiah passage, uh, the first bit of verse 6 says, To us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's really ordinary. 300,000 babies born in the world every day. My guess is probably something like 50-50. That makes about 150,000 boys born every day. Why is a child born to us? Why is a son given to us exceptional? It's very ordinary. Jesus was a real baby. He would have cried He would have needed feeding. He would have needed his nappy changing. He would have needed winding. He would have needed a bath. He would have needed a cuddle. He would need to go to sleep. A real baby. We don't don't have this kind of extraordinary, kind of a, a glowing baby like you see on some of the Christmas cards. You know, there's the manger and everyone's gathered around. And there's this extraordinary light emanating from it. Like he's, he's somehow got radioactive or something. And the glow is illuminating everyone. But everyone's kind of stepping back a bit because they don't, they don't want to kind of get involved in too much genetic damage. And at the end, the, the kind of the innkeeper comes to sweep up and clean up after them. It's like, what have you done to my manger? Not only have you given birth, I'm sweeping the Geiger counter off. It's going off the scale. The ox are refusing to eat it for health and safety fears. He's a normal-looking baby. No glow, no special kind of aura about him. If you'd have been there, you could have looked and seen it's just a baby. It's ordinary. It's just a baby. To us, a child is given. To us, a son is born. It's just a baby. But it goes on to say more than that. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Excuse me. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus was far more than just a baby. Jesus was God come down to earth to rescue us. Jesus was God born as a baby, growing up into a man to reconnect us with God. In Jesus, God becomes human. This is a unique breaking in to history. This has never been done before. This was so extraordinary. And yet, if you'd have been there, at Bethlehem, the real place, in the real time, in the reign of Augustus, during the census supervised by Quirinius, you could have seen the baby and seen him there and touched him 
if you'd have got close enough, I'd imagine Joseph would have told you to back off at that stage. But God coming to earth as a person right in front of our eyes. Because Christianity is not based on mystical experiences and philosophies. Christianity is based self-consciously on historical events. It doesn't claim, Christianity doesn't claim that, hey, if we're all nice and do certain things, maybe the world will be a better place. Christianity claims, do you know what? One day in real life, God really became a human to come and rescue us and reconnect us to himself. Verse 2 that we read says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. It's speaking about the birth of Jesus. It says, living our lives without God, we're like people wandering slightly aimlessly in the dark, and we can't really see where we're going or how we're getting anywhere. We can't really work out what to do with ourselves. We can't really work out how to make life work. We don't see life correctly. We don't perceive the world as it really is. It's like we're in darkness. We're like those people uh, in days gone by, in, in, in the past, who believed that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun and the planets and the stars all revolved around the earth. And we know now that's completely the opposite. And yet we do that with God. We think we are the center of life and everything else revolves around us. Whereas actually the reality is we've displaced God from the center. We don't see clearly. We're walking in darkness. We're feebly groping forward, trying to find sense of life, trying to find meaning, trying to find purpose, trying to find something that works and makes life have a purpose to us. Jesus, it says, came to be a bright light shining. With the birth of Jesus, it wasn't just a baby. And it certainly wasn't a glowing baby. But yet spiritually and metaphorically, suddenly in the world of darkness that you and I live where we stumble about, Suddenly, it was like dawn has broken. It was like the long Antarctic winter. Months and months and months has gone and suddenly the sun appears over the horizon because Jesus came not just to be a baby, not just to pose for some Christmas card nativity scenes. Jesus came to live as a man, to grow up and to live a perfect life. And by his life and his death, And his miraculous resurrection from the dead, which is not so hard if God really exists and is intervening in the world, to reconnect people like you and me back to God. When you reconnect with God, you you, you find this is the reason I exist. This is the purpose. You get a new life. You get a new center. You suddenly see, I see the world is not centered around me. It's centered around God. And this makes sense. And this is fulfilling. And this is why I exist. And this is why I feel the way I do and ask the questions that I do. You suddenly find this is the point. That's why Jesus was come to be a light in the darkness that we live in. That's why we do a carol service. Not just because we love singing carols with 74% of the great British public, but because as a church here we found individually, do you know what? Jesus is a bright light that suddenly illuminates our darkness and changes our lives. And we would love you to have an opportunity to find out more about Jesus and reconnecting. I think Christmas is a really good time to think again. I think with this Christmas story right in front of you, I think Christmas is a good time to think again about Jesus, about God, about life and about yourself. If Jesus is real, then he opens the door for you to connect with God. He opens the door for you to know God who knows you, who loves you and who invites you. To know him. And I just think it would be a massive shame if Jesus is real to just exist in the ordinary and the mundane and to miss the most exceptional and important thing 
of all. Surely, even the possibility makes it worth investigating further. And I'm going to leave that ball in your court. Happy Christmas. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to stand, we're going to sing one more carol, which I believe is a real belter.